And uh, I don't know what the week was like for you. For my family, it was a little bit of an interesting week. The youngest two girls in our family left for boot camp. So they're uh, going to do ROTC in college, and they left for uh, their 15 days of basic training this week. And, uh, and then after that, they'll go right into military college for the next four years. And so the big debate between them was, are we going to be roommates in college? One week, yeah, we definitely want to be roommates. The next week, nope, I want to be as far away from you as possible. Next week, maybe. It was back and forth. And uh, I can remember when I was an RA, you know, you know, you have roommate troubles and stuff like that. And I remember as an RA, my, uh, I think my second year as an RA, I had two residents and they absolutely hated each other. Uh, the biggest thing for them was the shades. That was kind of like where we had to go to mediation. One of them was like, I need my vitamin D. I need the sunlight. I need to have the shades open. And the other person said, I can't. I have a medical condition. I don't like it. And when you have the shades open, it, uh, it discolors my sheets and my bedding and stuff like that. So they, they were at it. And their big issue that came to a head on was the angle of the shades. So I have to sit down with them, have a mediation, and at the end of the time, they're like, Ravi, we dislike each other more. Like, we are more committed to moving out after you did this mediation than before. <laughs> so that was an epic fail as an RA. And uh, that year, more upset after I tried to help. Uh, but whether it's, you know, si family or sisters or roommates in life, we can have interpersonal issues with other people. We can have conflicts with other people. And, uh, and that's what we'll talk about tonight. We're going to go back to Matthew, because last week we looked at Matthew 16 and 17, where Yeshua says, I am building my community on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like the verse that Ron just read, where it says, Adonai will fight for us, and he is saying, you are my community, and whether it's death, whether it's physical sickness, whether it's financial difficulty, he says, you will storm the gates, and hell will not prevail against you. He says that in Matthew 16 and 17, but then in Matthew 18, he gives a warning, and he says, the gates of hell can't prevail against you, but if you don't handle sin and division in a healthy way, it can destroy your lives and your community. And so what we're going to look like tonight is the steps that Yeshua gives in Matthew 18 to have a community that's healthy. And in this passage, we're going to look at specifically Matthew 18, verses 15, through, 15 uh, through 20, where Yeshua gives them this is instructions for when you've got issues with other believers in the body Messiah, when you've got issues with other people in your congregation or issues with other people, here is the healthy way to handle it. And so we'll begin in Matthew 18, in verse 15. And it says, when your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault while you're with him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen, take with you one or two more people, so that by the mouth of two to three witnesses, every word may stand. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. And if he re refuses to listen even to Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan and as a tax collector. Amen, I tell you, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it shall be done for you by my Father in heaven. 
For wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And this is Yeshua's main teaching on how to deal with interpersonal issues within the body of Messiah. And it's got some verses in here that we usually pull out of context. I mean, the things we say about it are good, but it's not exactly what it's talking about. Right? You've, you've heard people say, like, when two or three are gathered in my name, if you have two or three people praying together, Yeshua's there. But that's not actually, Yeshua is not talking about prayer in this portion. He's talking about decision-making within a congregation. So it's true Yeshua is with two to three people, but he's also when it's just, when it's just one person, right? So some people call that, right, the Christian minion, right? In, the, in Jewish circles in Judaism, you got to have 10 people together to be able to have a full service. And so some people have said, okay, you got your Christian minion here, right here, two to three people. But he's not talking about prayer. He's talking about decision-making. And then you've got these words where he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And there's a lot of different, tr- uh, you know, interpretations of what that means, and they're not bad stuff. But what w- what's interesting about this passage is Yeshua isn't pulling these words out of thin air. These are words that were used in Judaism by the rabbis to describe halachic decision-making. And so when they needed to come together and there was a dispute within a community in ancient Israel, they'd gather together the leaders and they would decide what to do. They would decide, okay, what actions are permitted, what actions are forbidden. When they would say, we're, g- we're going to bind somebody, what are we going to discipline someone in our community or lose someone? Or are we going to restore someone? So when it talks about binding and loosing, the main thing that Yeshua is talking about here is he's talking about halakhic authority of the congregation deciding, okay, what decisions are we make and how are we going to handle a conflict or dispute within the congregation. And so in this passage, Yeshua gives some really interesting advice, and we're going to look at three things about conflict resolution within this passage. We're going to look at the levels of conflict resolution. We're going to look at the foundation of conflict resolution. And then we're going to look at the goal. And so the first thing is he has the levels. And the first thing about this is when he describes it, he describes three different meetings. He says, Ravi, if you have an issue... If you have an issue with Donna, first go to Donna, what I want, right? And then he says, if, if, if that doesn't resolve someone, you bring two or three people or you bring a congregation. There's three different meetings he has. There's three different levels of, of a conflict resolution. And the first one, if we want to put it like in modern day terms, the three different things would be negotiation, mediation, and arbitration. And so the first thing he says is have a meeting one-on-one with them, and you want to reach an agreement, which is what negotiation is about. And I was listening a few months ago to someone who was talking about reconciliation and God's heart for reconciliation. And he was saying lots of times we love the idea of reconciliation, but the difficulty with it is you can't get to reconciliation without confrontation. That that's the first step. But so often we don't like confrontation. It's difficult. Uh, I was looking at different books and things like that, and one of the books I was looking at a few years ago when trying to deal with, I think, conversations as an RA with some of my residents and different stuff was a book called Crucial Conversations. And it talked about that when you need to have that difficult conversation with somebody, so often we can either revert to silence or to violence. And it was saying with silence, there's three different ways that we can do that in a conversation to avoid the conflict. One is that we can mask it. We can downplay what we have to say or selectively show our thoughts. 
Like you could sugarcoat what you're trying to say or maybe have a little bit of sarcasm. You try to mask it a little bit. The second one, avoidance, which is about changing the topic, not addressing the issue, or changing the focus. For me, this is the, most, this is the one that I probably do the most, avoidance. Like I remember at college, I'd be inviting people to different Messianic Jewish events we do on campus. And if I was going to see a Jewish friend of mine, I'd invite them. But then before they could even really engage it, I'd be like, this might go south. So I immediately avoided it and switched the topic of conversation. That's the biggest one for me. I will avoid it. I might bring it up, and when I sense that it might go bad, I'll preemptively move it to another topic. So that's the second one. And then the third is withdrawing, where you just leave the conversation. And so whether it's masking, avoiding, or withdrawing, these are three different ways where when we're faced with a crucial conversation, we can just revert to silence. The other thing that's so easy for us to do is revert to violence in those, in, in those crucial conversations. And that can take the form of trying to control, of pressuring people to adopt your view, of labeling people and just in name calling or generalizing or attacking or imitating others. And so, so often we, we have difficulty with healthy confrontation and it's easy to resort to one of these different things. But what Yeshua calls us here is that he says if we want reconciliation, if we want to move forward, sometimes we have to do the hard, painful thing of having a confrontation, of having a difficult conversation. But he says that's the first step to have that. The second thing he says is if when you have that difficult conversation with somebody and, they, and you guys cannot reach an agreement, to bring in, it says, two to three witnesses. And the thing here is it's not that necessarily people saw what was going on before, but these are two to three people who can help mediate the, the uh, difficult conversation and help you guys to reach agreement, who can help you guys think objectively about it. And then his last thing is if that doesn't work, bring it to the congregation. So bring it to the congregational leaders and they'll arbiter or kind of judge and to see, okay, how do we apply God's word in the law? How do we weigh the evidence? And how do we give due process so this is a fair, a fair thing and a just thing for everyone? And so Yeshua lays out these three different levels. And as I would read different books, because so often today you will have, you know, crazy disagreements. I mean, right, just look at Congress, right? They're probably exhibit the worst of us in having disagreements or having things. And as I look at Yeshua's way of handling conflict, it is so different than how the world handles it. But it's so healthy to approach these three levels. First, a one-on-one -on -one difficult conversation. Then bring in two to three people who could objectively help you. And then third, bring it before the leaders. So often we try to rush through these steps, but Yeshua really lays out, if you go through at these levels and these sequence in this order, it is so much healthier. It is so much healthier. So the first thing he gives them is these levels to conflict resolution and then the foundation. And what's interesting to me is the context of when this happens. Right before Yeshua brings up this idea of conflict resolution, he talks about humility. It's not Yeshua isn't changing the subject, but that if we want to have unity and purity within our community, if you want to be healthy, it's grounded in humility. And that's where Yeshua takes it first. And that's the same thing that Rabbi Paul does in Philippians. In chapter 2, in, in Philippians, 
Rabbi Paul is writing to a community that was dealing with some difficulties, some strife between the people. And what he says to them is this. In Philippians 2, he does the same thing Yeshua does. He begins in Philippians 2, verse 1, and he says, If there's any encouragement of Messiah, any comfort in love, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit with one purpose. So he's calling them to unity. And then he says this in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but with humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Looking now not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others, having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. And then he describes this ancient song. What we have next is an ancient song of the early Messianic believers where they sang about the humility of Messiah, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death. And because he did that, God gave him the name that is above every name, and to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua is Lord. And so what he says is he directs them to humility, but he, then he says, okay, how do we do that? He says we look to Yeshua's example of humility. And when we see his example of humility, that is what inspires and empowers us to be able to have unity with others. Because the thing that kills unity, the thing that kills the healthiness in a community is our own individual pride. And so he calls them to look to the example of Yeshua. Because when we see what Yeshua did for us, it forces us to humbly receive his grace and to give grace. Because we know we didn't deserve it ourselves. And so the same thing that Rabbi D Paul talks about in Philippians 2 is the same thing Yeshua does. Because right after he talks about how to handle conflict resolution, he goes into this parable about forgiveness. Because when we realize what God has done for us in forgiving us, it frees us to forgive others. others. And so he tells this parable where somebody was brought before a king because he owed 10,000 talents. And today that's the equivalent of about $3 billion. So not as, not as much, as like m much money as like Jeff Bezos has, right? But a lot of money. And then it says he doesn't have the money to repay. And so he, he gets on his knees and he begs him, saying, be patient with me, I'll repay you everything. It says out of compassion, he's forgiven, totally released, $3 billion of debt, wiped out. And then what he immediately does is go to somebody who owes him, it says, 100 talents, which is about 5,000 bucks. And he throws him into prison and says, I won't let you go until you pay me back. Somebody forgiven $3 billion doesn't forgive someone a debt of $5,000. And Yeshua is driving this home, this point, that in conflict resolution, the attitude that we have to have going into it, the attitude for any interpersonal issue is this humility and this realization that we ourselves have been forgiven, that I would never be able to repay the debt that God has given to me. I'll never be able to do it. And when we realize that, it frees us to be able to forgive others and to look with humility towards reconciliation and unity within the community. And we can see how Yeshua calls them to do this. And the last thing about it is, is it's interesting because he says, if you don't forgive in this passage, he says this. He finishes the parable this way. It says, when some people saw 
what this ungrateful servant had done. They told their master, and summoning the servant to himself, his master said, you wicked servant, I forgave your debt because you pleaded with me. Wasn't it necessary for you to also show mercy to your fellow servant just as I had shown mercy to you? Enraged, the master handed him over to the torturers until he had paid back all that he owed. And then Yeshua said, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless each of you from your hearts forgives his brother. Like Yeshua just nails, you know, nails it in the coffin, this idea of forgiveness. But in looking at forgiveness and looking at that, it's difficult for us because I think my natural thing is to have difficulty with a God who talks about this. And if you look at this passage and you see this verse here where it says, the master turned over the servant to torturers, where earlier where it talks about humility, Yeshua says to them that if anybody causes one of my children to stumble, uh, he says, it would be better for you to have, ton of, to have taken a millstone around your neck and to be sunk into the depth of the sea. And he says, if you do anything to cause my children to stumble, or if you don't pluck out what causes you to stumble, he says, it's better to enter life with one less eye than to be thrown into fiery Gehenna. And so in this passage where God calls us to forgiveness, where God calls us to unity as a community, he talks about hell and he talks about punishment. And those can be really difficult things to grasp. And, and it's difficult verses to swallow. And this idea of God's punishment is difficult and then you've got the tension because in the same passage in Matthew 18, it says, but it's not the will of the Father in heaven that any of these ones should be lost, that anyone should be destroyed. And so we have in this, in this portion the tension, right, between God being a God who has judgment and God being a God who doesn't want anyone to perish or be destroyed. And yet what we have here in this tension is the fact that God hates evil he hates sin. He hates injustice and oppression. And yet, the most interesting thing about it is that how he punishes us is that he withdraws his presence and his goodness, and he leaves us to our own self-destructive things. It's like C.S. Lewis said, hell is locked from the inside, that ultimately God gives us what we ultimately want. And that if we choose to say, God, I want nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your love, nothing to do with your goodness, then the greatest punishment God has is to kind of respect what we want and to withdraw himself and to withdraw his goodness. And yet even while Yeshua mentions this to them that our God is a God of justice, he says to them, you can receive this forgiveness. And if you allow yourself to be wrecked by the forgiveness of God, it can liberate you not only to live in light of God's love, but to love others and to live in unity in the community. And that we can do that with, with a heart of forgiveness. And that really, Yeshua is saying, if we want to be a community that's marked by power, that storms the gates of hell, if we want to be a community that's marked by unity, with joy, with synergy, then he's saying it's grounded in humility and forgiveness that he's saying there is a time to overlook offenses, but there's also a time where we can see if something is damaging, that it's a recurring issue, that if someone does it again and again, it's self-destructive to them and it's harmful to other people, that God sometimes calls us to do this difficult work of conflict resolution, 
to, to engage confrontation, but not in pride, but to do it with humility in light of the forgiveness we have been given from God. And as we want to practically apply that, there's just two practical pieces of advice. As I look at these scriptures from Matthew and Philippians, and then I also looked at a book uh, by a hostage negotiator for the FBI. And I was like, okay, God, what are some of the truths of scripture that line up with what this hostage negotiator did? And one of the things this hostage nego uh, negotiator, Chris Voss, said is that he took, you know, the thing from, uh, from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. But in his book, Chris talks about it, kick it up a notch. And he says, seek first to demonstrate understanding in order to be understood. And it's this idea of that even before you go into the conversation wanting to speak about your own interests, to fully understand where the other person is coming from, to be able to emphasize with them, not that their feelings are right, right? God, it says Yeshua had compassion for the masses, but the fact of the reality is that so much of the issues in our lives as humans is caused by our own sin as humans, right? God's not responsible for that. We can't put that on him. And yet he has compassion for us in understanding where we're coming from. It doesn't validate our, our feelings about things, but he does understand it. And in Philippians 2, that verse we read, it says, do nothing out of selfishness or conceit. But he says, looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others, considering them as more important than yourselves. And so if we kind of take this scripture to heart and take what this hostage negotiator takes to heart, if we seek first to be able to understand where someone is coming from, to be able to communicate that back to them, to paraphrase it, to communicate it back that we truly are seeking to understand where they're coming from, it can disarm the conversation and help us to be able to move forward. And so as we do it, Yeshua is calling us not to confront people in pride, not to confront people in self-righteousness, but to do it from a perspective of humility, recognizing that we've been forgiven, and wanting to understand them, to help liberate them to understand the grace of God and to be able to move forward. And so as we move forward, I feel like God has so much for us as a community. As I, as I think about that verse from Matthew 16 where Yeshua says, storm the gates of hell, it will not prevail against you. I think there is so much potential in us as a community. There is so much potential in the body of Messiah to turn the world upside down. That there are so many problems that are being faced by our friends, by our neighbors, that our community, that we can bring healing and restoration to. But if we're not able to handle sin and division within our own community first, it'll self-destruct on us before we can bring the power of God to others. And so Yeshua does not abandon us as orphans. He gives us these instructions, right? Timeless instructions. The best of the American legal system, the best of it, right, is based on these things, right? The timeless truth of God's word that if we go through the levels of conflict reconciliation God's way, if we begin with a foundation of humility and forgiveness and of considering others as more important than ourselves, there is no limit to what God can do in us and through us in storming the gates of hell in our lives and in our communities. 
And so if you just want to join me in prayer that we would be wrecked by the forgiveness of God and liberated to bring this reconciliation to others. God, it is unthinkable what Yeshua bore for our forgiveness. God, it is unthinkable the torture that he endured so that we could be liberated from all of guilt, shame, and fear. And God, I just ask that we as a people would be wrecked by the reality of what Yeshua has done for us. God, that forever, for all eternity, he will bear the scars of his crucifixion for our redemption. And God, in light of your forgiveness, would that wreck us with the humility to move forward, to confront and to speak the truth in love, to do the painful work of having difficult conversations, to remove the specks and the logs in our eyes, to understand where others are coming from, and to call them to new life in Yeshua. God, we thank you that the work Yeshua done, has done is not in vain. His death is not in vain. And so, God, we're clinging to the truth that we would experience the full reality of what is ours in Yeshua's death, that we would be fully transformed by it and liberated to live healthy relationships and to see your power unleashed in our communities. In Yeshua's name, amen.